down right there. Um, if you are in our youth age group, which I think is basically this row over here and at the back, there are some um, interactive things for you to do while Nick is speaking that will hopefully um, be engaging while he is speaking on the topic um, of John chapter 4. They're just under... Grace, do you just want to undo them for me? Um, so feel free to come up and grab them if you would like. And if you are young at heart and you would like some um, activities to do that will be hopefully exactly what Nick is also sharing about, then you are welcome to grab them too. Thanks. How's that? Yeah, there we go. It probably will save my voice a little bit. Um, in 2014, which is now nearly a decade ago, I actually started working just up the road at Seymour College. And when I started working there, um, I worked in this building called Barsmith House, which is this beautiful old um, heritage building, uh, and there's a really good history that's connected with this church, but that's a story for another time. And as I walked around it and I was getting to know the place, I noticed at the back uh, in this little kind of dingy part of it, there was this metal grate that went in a circle and I was at the back and covered the ground and I kind of walked, just didn't really think much about it. Then as time went on, I kept walking past her and I was like, well, what is this grate? I, didn't un and I never understood what it was. And one day I, I happened to be near one of the groundskeepers and I said, hey, what, what is this grate? And it turns out that this was actually the well that the family originally used to draw water from. And I was like, that's pretty cool. Uh, you know, do you know anything more about it? He goes, yeah, I actually do. In early 2000s, we opened it up and managed to get water out of it, and you could still drink it. It was perfectly fine. And it turns out it comes from a, um, a reservoir that goes underneath uh, the site of the college, and there's a creek there as well, and that originates up in Waterfall Gully. And there's actually a company called Green Hill Spring Water Company that uses that same spring to make water still. They still sell it um, up around the area. Um, and it's quite incredible to think that there's just been this, this reserve of water that sits there that we can still drink out of. And the waterfall up at Waterfall Gully is actually a result of the natural springs that are associated with that same well. Um, it creates creeks, and so the idea of a spring is that it's this yeah, under, underground reservoir and there's so much pressure that it builds up and it kind of comes out of the ground and that's where you get these creeks and then it, and it ends up being a waterfall, um, which many of us have probably seen. And so it's incredible to think that in there, uh, especially at the moment when we think about the couple of weeks we've had and the week that we're heading into, where you've got this dry, uh, arid land with rocks and everything, there is water that just kind of comes out of nowhere and builds life around it, both for plants and animals. And most of our lives are actually dictated by water. When you think about it, most of our cities are built around waterways. Um, the, uh, whether you're in an office, uh, you probably count the number of hours by the amount of glasses that you drink of water and all those sorts of things. And so part of our lives is dictated around water. And water is actually a really central theme to what um, the author of John was getting to here. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage line by line. And we're going to draw out some bits that I think are, are really relevant or stood out to me, and then also what they mean to us. And so if you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to open to John, because we are going to be moving through it. Uh, and so you can kind of keep up. So that's John 4, 1 to 29. And now, before I do start, I'd like to just point out one little element that um, I can't fully understand. So as a white male in a very privileged position, 
um, this story features a, a woman of a minority group, and there's, a, and there's there's an experience there that I will never understand. And so um, I thought that was really good to acknowledge because there are times where people can speak into things that I think maybe they don't they don't fully grasp that concept of it. And so I'll be sensitive to that, um, but I did want to acknowledge that before I start. And so we're going to start again with that central theme that I was talking about, water. Uh, water is a constant through the Bible. Uh, in Genesis 2, we see a story of a land that is dry and desolate, and God creates streams that flow up from the earth and flow out into the garden and then beyond. And this happens all the way through the Bible. You can read word studies where it, it goes everywhere, and it actually ends in Revelation 21, uh, where it says, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Even the passage that Swan talked about at camp talks about being born of water and, and of spirit, and there's a bit of a link to that later on. And throughout the Bible, water is used in, uh, to signify many things, but constantly this idea of water is about giving life. That tends to be the theme of it. And so I don't think it's an accident that we find ourselves here in John with Jesus sitting at a well with a woman. Now, most Jews, when they would have done their travel to Jerusalem, would have avoided the area of Samaria. Um, there was a lot of animosity between the two cultural groups, so much so that they would avoid it. It was actually inconvenient for them to, to avoid it, but they did it so much out of spite. And this story goes back a long way, and there's uh, displaced people and changes in customs and different sites of worship, and I'd love to go fully into that, but uh, we don't have time for that. So just believe me when I say that there were significant cultural differences here. And so in verse 4, we read that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, there's some disagreement about this, but the word that John uses here, uh, it, it doesn't mean, t uh, it wouldn't suggest that he, he did this because it was a quick way of going. It didn't suggest that he was like, I'll just take a shortcut to Jerusalem because that's the better way of going it. It's actually more likely that this is what God had planned for Jesus. He understood that this was part of what he needed to do. The word that John uses um, for must in this in the Greek actually indicates that there was a mission he uses, this, he uses the same word in other ways when there is a mission from God. And so it's, it's likely that this was very purposeful that he took this way. And I think it's the same for us. You know, to follow Jesus, we're going to go into places that actually aren't convenient for us, but we've got to follow that plan, that mission that we are given. We have to do that regardless of the cost. And so he arrived in this town called Sakar, and it says near the plot of Jacob, uh, the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now, this is actually a hyperlink. Um, there are hyperlinks all through the Bible in which little phrases and things that are used that will point back to a, a previous part of the Bible that gives us an indication of what the story is talking about. And so in this, it's actually talking about uh, where Jacob gives a special bit of land to his beloved son, Joseph, and he is actually the great ancestor of the Israelites. And so there's this theme of giving life um, all scattered all through it, and it's so thematic, which is very typical of John. And so Jesus is tired from his journey and he takes a seat at the well. Now, a fun fact about this well, the Greek word used in this passage actually means both a dugout well that you would like normally consider where there's water at the bottom and you'd put a bucket in, and also means a running spring, and a spring is where the water actually comes up. And so uh, this would mean that the water comes up to meet the person collecting rather than actually having to go and get it. And so for me, I kind of think like this is the perfect propped-based sermon illustration. Jesus is like orchestrated for himself he's ready to be on stage climbing a ladder that kind of thing and so it's all perfectly set up so that's why I kind of feel like there's that mission element there and I love that it says that Jesus was tired this shows his humanity he didn't just come down floating on clouds or just hovered over there or just appeared he'd actually been on a long journey through likely a very hot part of the desert and he wanted a drink it shows as the 
limitations that he had as a, as a human, that had, God had become human. And I think there's a certain encouragement for us there that he understands our humanity. And it tells us it was about noon. Now, this isn't like I'm a random just letting us know the time. I know there's people in your life that you know that kind of just tell you the time all the time. I don't, I don't understand it, but I think there's actually a little bit more to it than this. See, this was not the normal time for a woman to come to a well, let alone a single woman to come and draw water. Usually it would be a group that would come, and they would come in the morning or the evening, and it was out of the hot of the day. And as we're going to find out a little bit later, and as Courtney just read, there are some social and uh, cultural reasons for her arrival being alone. And so we find Jesus asking her for water and her absolute surprise at this fact. Now, if you were a first century Jew, this, this, this little passage here would have been like that record scratch moment. You would have been like, what are you talking about? Why is there a Jewish man and a single Samaritan woman talking to each other? It, it doesn't make much sense. Um, as uh, the, the great sage Bandit from Bluey says, it's not the done thing. In that time, many Jewish teachers warned against speaking with women, especially in general, and the thought of speaking, against, uh, uh, th uh, speaking alone with a Samaritan woman would have been completely off the table. And further to this, using her drinking utensil would have been out of the question, as this would have broken all sorts of purity laws. But I think this is where we're starting to see the bigger picture. Jesus is breaking out of the cultural norms and beginning to open the kingdom wider. That will become really important later on. Jesus then elevates the conversation in the next verse, and which I'll be honest, is, I think it would be a bit of a surprise. You go from kind of talking about having a drink of water and suddenly you're talking about gifts from God and living water. I think that's because Jesus, Jesus wants to get to a point here. He understands his mission and he actually wants to drive that home. The phrase Jesus uses here, living water, isn't actually unheard of in that cultural time. It simply meant a running stream or fresh and flowing um, water um, free from being stagnant. And so it wouldn't, have been, um, it wouldn't have been a complete surprise to hear that phrase. But John is extremely fond of using double meanings. And so what John is actually alluding to here is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is offering genuine life in the Spirit that comes through him, a life that's connected with the activity of the Holy Spirit. It's a running source of water that has the ability to naturally spring and purify and give life. It's an offering that is linked with Yahweh as the spring of living water or the fountain of life. There is a view of the Trinity here where you have God, Son, and Spirit being offered as true life for us. I mean, can you imagine being there and getting that offering? How, like, what would you say to that? How would you respond and so I think she stays, she stay, uh, stays skeptical, like many of us would. She says, sir, uh, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than the father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? I mean, he's a stranger. He's potentially insulting the ancestors of this woman, um, that especially Samaritans. They admired this place, and they admired that woman. It was a place of worship and a place of holy significance. How dare he, uh, he claim to produce something that's better than what is there at the moment? And so Jesus responds, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become, a, uh, become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To never be thirsty again. I imagine the picture in the heat and the dryness, the desolation of the area they are in, to never be thirsty again would have been quite an alluring phrase. Jesus is offering something to permanently satisfy, something far greater than the temporary of a bucket of water.
In Isaiah 55, it says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, that your soul may live. Jesus is offering these waters. And note that he isn't actually offering to remove thirst. He isn't saying, uh, come to me and I'll get rid of all your problems. He's actually offering something far greater. He's offering a pouring out of the Spirit. And this actually won't be a single act. It's not a one and done thing. This is a spring within them that will continue to pour out. It will constantly be poured out unto us, refreshing us constantly. In his book, Open to the Spirit, Scott McKnight says that the power of the Spirit happens over time. It's not a single event. It's a continual refreshing like a spring that keeps us filled and continues to change and give us life. It's important to recognize again who Jesus is actually offering this to. It's probably the most unlikely candidate that he could have found. Someone that's on the outside of society in almost every way possible and he's chosen to speak with her alone at a well offering living water. Now as we move on, she isn't uh, still isn't kind of taking him quite seriously. And like Nicodemus, he takes, uh, she takes a really literal understanding of what Jesus is saying. So she responds politely and says, Sir, but almost a hint of sarcasm, asking for this incredible water that he's offering, kind of like, yeah, where do I get this? Like, oh, there's almost a, a, yeah, a hint of sarcasm or disbelief of what he's saying. And she's still referring to that kind of earthly need of needing water. And this is where Jesus gets pretty straight with her. And I think it's a really, really important moment. I think he's slowly been breaking down these barriers that this woman has likely put up. I mean, if you think about her experience, she's probably rightly defensive. She, um, as we read on, she has a, a certain level of life that others would look down upon her on. They wouldn't speak to her. She would be left alone. She's having to come into the desert at the middle of the day to get water. Likely, she's not the most popular person. And so she would rightly so have her walls right up. And Jesus has been breaking these down little by little. But he wants to make that connection because he wants her to understand what he's truly offering. I can almost like sense the tension in that conversation. It would have been like a flick of a switch. So he says, go and call your husband and come back. And she responds, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. So Jesus asked her to get her husband. She, she replies truthfully. She's honest about it. She says, I have no husband. But she maybe doesn't say the full picture, as I think a lot of us would understand that concept of maybe, maybe not giving away the whole truth of something. And then Jesus responds, accepting her truthfulness and then displaying a knowledge that goes beyond human needs. This is where Jesus is starting to show his true nature to her, to get her to understand that what he's offering isn't temporary. There's actually a higher level of that. And I can imagine in this moment, her heart would have sunk. The moment he says, you're right that you have that, you actually have five husbands, it would have been that drop that you feel in your gut when someone reveals something that you actually don't want them to know. Jesus knew her identity in this moment, her past, her shame. But the fact is, he isn't hiding away from those ugly parts of life. He doesn't want a veneer or like an Instagram-worthy version of her. And I wonder if there's like a hint of genesis in here where Jesus wants her, like Adam and Eve originally, to be raw and vulnerable before her, not after the fall where they're actually hiding. Hiding away their shame, hiding away their sin, hiding away the parts of them that they don't really want God to know. So while acknowledging that Jesus is now more than a, more than a mere stranger, that he's a prophet, 
the woman still deflects away from this. She still doesn't want to enter into that deep relationship. And so she brings up a theological question about worship to try and kind of change the subject. And I 100% get this. Like, how often do we feel shame for our past? And so what we'll do is we'll deflect or we'll disassociate away from it so that's not something that, um, thank you so much for that biscuit. That's great. Um, that it doesn't, uh, that we don't want to deal with that pain. And so we'll find whatever excuse we can to move away from that pain. Like, this is humanity. This is the reality of living in a broken world where we, ha- we do broken things or we have broken things done to us. And it's a place where we don't necessarily feel comfortable. And I know for me, it's a lot easier to talk shop. I love talking theology because I can put that over there. I don't have to talk about myself. I don't have to talk about what I'm going through because I can just talk about what that book said or I can talk about what this theologian said. But that's actually how we have to come to God. And I think that's what Jesus is starting to get at here is that we have to come with a certain level of vulnerability and openness. We need to bear it all because we actually can't hide anything from God. We don't have that ability. This is the honesty that we must give to God from ourselves. Because even if we don't believe that our sin and shame is too much, God doesn't. In the face of it, in the face of whatever we think that we have to hide, he offers living water to us all in our absolute lowest moment. Now, I think in this moment she's starting to get a sense that Jesus is someone great. And I think her question here has a lot to say about the way her mind is starting to change. So she que- she's starting to question her beliefs of, of being a Samaritan and what they believed, and perhaps wondering if the Jews were right. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to speak into the true nature of God and something that is coming. One of the key points that came out to me this is this idea that worship is innately spiritual. It isn't dependent on a place or a thing. We can't manufacture real worship. No amount of smoke or lights will be able to do this. In this debate between Jews and Samaritans, he subverts this entire idea of this is where I should worship or no, this is where I worship. He comes right underneath that, explaining that there's a time that has come and will, uh, that will come and has come where the true worshippers will worship the Father. When I read that, I actually asked myself the question, like, am I a true worshipper? The vision that he's putting out there, I kind of don't know. I don't know if I'm a true worshipper. I've done it for a long time. If we're talking about music, I've played that since I was, I don't know how old, mum, like 14 or something like that. I've read enough that I understand things, but am I a true worshipper? Now, Jesus says that salvation will come from the Jews I found this a little bit confusing and I read into it and I think really what Jesus is getting at is he's trying to say that um, this is God's plan being worked out. God's plan was always that the people of Israel would deliver the world and be reconnected with God. It's God's plan for salvation that will come through that and his vision of that is Jesus. Jesus is the salvation that comes from the Jews. He's referring to himself and his approaching sacrifice on the cross that will allow for a greater height of worship. And the phrase Jesus uses here, in spirit and in truth, strikes me. A spirit here likely refers to the human spirit, not the Holy Spirit, although the Holy Spirit will help us. It isn't enough for us to be somewhere at the right time and do the right thing. God requires more than that. God is spirit, 
and therefore we must worship with our spirit. I think this is a huge challenge, especially for us that have grown up in potentially more conservative churches and, and conservative households where uh, the idea of worshipping with your spirit is something that's a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm so practical, so part of me just goes, well, I don't really, you know, worship me spirit, great, that's all good, just tell me the steps. Just tell me the things I've got to do to worship, and that makes it easy, because that's a, that's a complicated thing, I can do step by steps, but worship is, complicated, uh, is complex, not complicated. What Jesus is calling us to here, he wants us to worship with our very inner being, our spirit, our life force. And I think that's a really challenging part, especially in our culture at the moment. The truth is, what we understand God to be, uh, sorry, the truth is, and what we understand God to be is going to help with that essence of worship. And and one definition um, that is used for the Greek is true notions of God which are open to human reason without his supernatural intervention. And so that word in spirit and, uh, and in truth, that truth word, there's no greater revelation of God than Jesus. See, Jesus is the word, the truth, and the life. And so to worship in spirit and truth, Jesus is integral to that. And the phrase is actually linked here. It's not two separate words. They're not two characteristics that we have to make sure we tick the boxes for. It is in spirit and in truth. Imagine a church that worships in spirit and in truth. Like that would be a church on fire, worshipping in all aspects of their life with their whole being grounded in Jesus Christ. This would be a, a powerful vision of church, one that would bring so many to Christ. And I'm not talking about bringing people into the doors and having numbers. I'm talking about a radical change in a society, in a community that starts from within the church. What if Glenn Osmond was to look like this? Take a moment, can you imagine what that would actually look like in these buildings and then beyond into our communities? In a last attempt to evade what Jesus is saying, she, she doesn't dispute it, but she speaks of another, another he that will explain everything. So I think this is her last just attempt to try and hold on to what she believes rather than what he's saying. And, and Jesus, in a bold declaration that he hasn't made outside of his immediate circle. So he hasn't actually made this in the Jewish synagogues or anything. He admits to who he really is. In Greek, there's actually no he. There's no word. So the phrase really reads, I that speak to you, I am. A statement that alludes to his absolute greatness as God made human flesh sitting at the well in the middle of nowhere offering living water to a Samaritan woman. It makes so much sense when we think of Jesus' ministry up until this point. He wouldn't announce it in front of kings and queens, in front of crowds of Jews or in front of a giant military or in front of rulers or celebrities, but to a Samaritan woman, an outcast, someone on the lowest end of their society, and that's who he chooses to admit his messiahship to. This is a picture of the kingdom that he's putting out, living water for those that truly need it. Now, I'll, uh, I'll close up here, but after hearing this, I can't help but feel this should get a response from us. This offer of living water, so powerful that it bubbles up in us and should stream out, like a picture in Genesis, living water that brings life. 
This, for me, is a picture of mission. As accepting Jesus Christ in us, we are given the Spirit. We are giving that, given that living water that Jesus has talked about. And so, constantly, it will be a living stream that doors up in us. But we can't keep that to ourselves. Like up in Mount Osmond, the stream doesn't just stay with itself and create its own little... It actually increases the ecosystem that it's in. It creates creeks, it creates waterfalls, it creates lakes. These streams help everything around them. And so I think this picture here is truly missional. It's a, it's a mission that we are given when we're given the Spirit to then go out, be living streams in our communities. After this encounter with Jesus, we read on further that the woman actually can't help but go tell people. She has met with the Messiah and has to go tell someone about this experience that she has. And now in this time, that's not a normal thing. A woman wouldn't normally go into a group of men and say, hey, I've actually met the Messiah. You need to understand this now because she would be laughed out of the place. This was not a common practice, but so strongly she felt about having to tell people that she went and did it. And do you know what? People came to Christ through that. They heard her testimony and said, I want to know more. And they were accepted into the family of God. It's, it's an incredible thing. And I think it speaks so much to the mission that we are trying to bring here at Glen Osborne, that missional purpose that we got to start here and then go out into our communities of streams of living water. We need to recognize, as we've accepted Jesus, we have this living water within us already. The Spirit is with us. We have promised that. We've been given that authority, and there's a power in that. But it's not a power to do what we want with. It's not a power in the Western concept of what power is. It's actually power to do the will of God. To accept the commission we have been given and to go and make disciples, just as that Samaritan woman did. Sensing the enormity of what Jesus had offered her, going out into her world, into her community, and changing people for Christ. It's an incredible vision. And so my prayer in reading through this is that that would actually be the vision that we have here at Glen Osborne, that we would be able to understand the power of the Spirit, that we would know that we have living streams within us, and that this would cause us to go out on mission in our communities, that we would allow the Spirit to move through us, Understanding that we don't control this, but it is God who controls this. God who prompts us to go do things. The Spirit who says to us, go talk to this person or go speak with that community. And that allows us to further the kingdom of God, especially to those that need it. Let's pray. Dear Father, we, we understand the mission that you've given us. We've read over it and over it time and time again, but... We just pray that you would give us a fresh insight into that, that your, your spirit would speak to us in a way that, that we cannot do anything but, but move on it, that it's an active spirit within us. It isn't stagnant. It is moving water within us that we would be pushed to go out into our communities, go pushed to speak to people that we know because we know the, the gift, the free gift that has been given to us. And we just thank you so much that we get to come into this place and understand more about your word and who you are and then move from here outward, not reflecting and staying inward, but moving out into our communities, being on the mission and the great commission that you have given us as people. 
Lord, we just thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this incredible community that we get to be a part of. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as a bit of a response to that, we're actually going to head into a time of communion. And so as we head into this and we take